Good morning. It is good to be here, and it has been a while since I've been here. <clears throat> and uh, Tom or Ben commented about a lot of people being away this Sunday. I guess the word got out who was speaking. So, <laughs> but uh, honestly, I've spent the last year preaching to congregations of ten to fifteen people. So this seems like a pretty good-sized group to me. And and after having not been in the pulpit here in a year and a half. Ben, you know your whole thing about nerves? I, I'm, I'm feeling a little bit, so I can understand that. It's good to be here. Um, this morning, we're going to be looking at uh, some verses in the book of James. And so I'd like to invite you to turn to James chapter 3. And I'm going to read... Uh, James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. But then I'm going to be focusing primarily on verse 14. I noticed the red battery light is on. Is that okay? It's not okay? I'm using this. May I take this thing off? Thank you. I don't like this thing anyway. Lesson learned, run the battery down beforehand and you don't have to use this. If I start wandering away from the pulpit, what's that? He will yell. He's had practice yelling at me. No, please don't get me another battery. I'm all set. Okay. James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace and I want to read that verse again because I love it so much. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Isn't that beautiful? So uh, before I get started with the actual message, let me just explain where this message is coming from. Uh, this summer, beginning of July, I got a phone call from uh, the director of a teen camp who said, Doug, I'd like to have you come and speak to our teens. I said, when? He said, next week, if possible. <laughs> and I thought, oh, I don't have time to prepare a message from scratch. Let me go back through all my old notes and see if I can find something that would work for a teen camp. So I went back through, uh, back through 2019, 18, 17, 16, it got to 2014 and I found a children's message. 
not a teen message, a children's message that I looked at and I said, this, this is as appropriate for 2021 as it was in, for 2014. And it's as appropriate for teenagers as it is for children, perhaps even more so. I think I can take this and tweak it and turn it from a children's message into a teen message. So that's what I worked on. And I was getting ready to go speak at the camp, and I got an email, and it was from Pastor Brian saying, Doug, would you like to come preach on September 5th? And I thought, hmm, that teen message only needs a little bit more tweaking because it's just as appropriate for grown-ups in 2021 as it was for children in 2014. So, you're getting a children's message this morning. It has been reworked twice this summer, once to be a teen message and once as a sermon. Um, but honestly, I really think sometimes that the best way to prepare a message is to prepare it for children. Uh, because sometimes when I'm trying to explain things to children, whether it's my own children or campers at a camp or at a church, my inability to explain things in a way that children understand helps me to understand how little I really get it myself. Uh, and that can be very helpful to me. And as I figure out ways to explain it to children, a lot of times I realize this, this works just as well for adults because we like it simple too. Um, so, but having said that, the main way I've turned this into a grown-up messages now before the actual sermon i'm going to make you suffer through a greek lesson which i don't do with children um, so the verse we're primarily going to look at is verse 14 which says but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth now depending on the translation you're using there may be some different words in there and so I want to just kind of cover some of those differences. First of all, where I read selfish ambition, some other translations will use the word strife there. And you might think, well, there's a pretty big difference between strife and selfish ambition, except for one thing, doesn't James tell us that our own selfishness is the cause of all of our quarreling? So it does fit. But for another thing, one of the ways that we use the word strife sometimes is the way that it's used here. My kids will tell you, because they spent a lot of their summer watching the Olympics, that those athletes are striving. And what are they striving for? They are striving to be first, to be best, to have the top position. And that's the way the Greeks use that word. Um, it was a word they used, actually, believe it or not, to talk about politicians. Go figure. Uh, it meant pushing yourself forward and being unreasonably ambitious. It's the opposite of the life of meekness that Christ demonstrated and called us to. So strife is an appropriate word there. Uh, selfish ambition may help you understand it a little bit better. Okay, so here's the next thing. The word and. Such a little word, and, um, and particularly verse 14, 
Uh, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and. Now that word and right there is a slightly different word than we're used to in Greek. It's a word that indicates that what follows is a direct consequence of what comes before. Okay, So the translation I read says, and so. Uh, the Amplified Bible says... Sorry, I lost it. And as a result of this. So when you read this verse, what you should think is the first half of it, selfish ambition, pride, and bitter jealousy, all feed into the last part of it, which is lying against the truth. Does that make sense? That's what that word and means there. Finally, the last little bit of Greek here uh, is the word truth that comes at the end of the verse. Now, I have always thought that that word is talking about theological truth, okay? Truth with a capital T, if you'd like to think of it that way, okay? Um, but the word is more universal than that. One Bible dictionary says that this word means what is true in any matter under consideration, that it means candor of mind, which is free, free from hypocrisy and pretense and falsehood and deceit, sincerity of mind and integrity of character. So it's not just talking about big T truth, it's also talking about what we might call lowercase t truth, okay? So let me just clarify that in case you're wondering what I'm talking about. If I were to stand here in this pulpit and say to you, Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead, well, that would be a lie against the truth. It would be a lie against the capital T theological about God truth. If I were to stand here in the pulpit and say, the steeple of this church is made of cotton candy. Now, that's also a lie, I think, unless the church has changed a lot since the last time I was here. That's a lie. But we would think of it as like a lowercase t truth. It's not on the same grand level as a theological lie, okay? But it's important to know that James is talking about both kinds of truth, the uppercase and the lowercase, and both are important. I think most of us would say the first lie I told is the more significant one with greater eternal impact than the second one. But on the other hand, if we are people who don't care about truth, wherever it may come, even lowercase t truth, who is going to want to listen to us when we want to talk to them about the uppercase t truth? If I spend my life talking about cotton candy steeples, nobody's going to listen to me talking about Jesus Christ rising from the dead. To James, they are both important. So that's, that's the uh, introduction to this. Uh, let me read the verse one more time. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. So I want to give you a very silly illustration to help you make sense of this verse. And Amanda's smiling because she's been my student and she knows how silly my illustrations can be. Okay, so I want you to imagine that you get together 
with four of your friends. Okay? Now, quick math lesson. If it's you and four of your friends, that's how many people? Oh, you guys are so good. You must have been my math students at some point. Okay, so there's five of you, and you're getting together because you all love pie. And I don't mean pie 3.14, you know, ratio of circumference. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the kind of pie you put in your mouth and eat. Okay? So as you're thinking about this, I want you to imagine your favorite kind of pie. Whatever it is that you love better than anything else, my dad will uh, start the group for the lemon meringue pie right over there. Um, last summer, uh, when it came time to start harvesting things from our garden, I harvested some rhubarb and I harvested some raspberries. And I thought, rhubarb is so tart. and Raspberries are so tart. And I love tart things. I wonder what would happen if I put these together. So I went looking to see if I could find a recipe for raspberry rhubarb pie, and I found one, and I made it. And I was amazed. I loved it. I'm like, this is my new favorite. Laura wasn't as impressed. She said, it's too tart. To which I said, I don't see that this is a problem, because if it's too tart, you just keep heaping on more and more vanilla ice cream until you get it to your perfect level of sweetness. And what is wrong with that? Okay, so for me, it's raspberry rhubarb pie. For you, it's whatever uh, you like the best. Okay, so now here's the next thing. You have to cut your pie up to share with your friends. How many of you are there? Five of you. Now. Speaking as a math teacher here, I don't know if this has crossed your mind, but five is an odd number. And it's actually hard to cut a piece of pie into an odd number of pieces, because you can't cut all the way across. You know, if you've got six, you can go like that. But with five, you've got to find the center. and oh, there, and It's hard to do and get it even. So you're sitting there with your friends, and you say, what are we going to do? And you say, OK. We'll just do six pieces, because that's easy to cut. What's the worst that could happen? We'll just have an extra piece left over. So somebody cuts the pie into six pieces, and you get out your five plates, and you scoop out your pieces of pie, and everybody sits around the table eating their raspberry rhubarb pie or whatever it is. Okay? But there's a problem, and those of you who are laughing know what the problem is. There's one piece of pie left. <laughs> wow. Wow, Vern's doing some least common multiple math over there. Town manager. <laughs> no, sorry, you've only got the one pie. We're going to stick with one pie. But thank you, Vern. I'll get you to teach some math for me someday. So the problem is there's one piece of pie left over. And here's what happens. Everybody's sitting there, all five of you, eating your piece of pie. But while you're eating it, you're eyeing that last piece sitting there. And you start thinking to yourself, if I eat my pie a little bit faster, 
I can be done before everyone else, and I can get that last piece of pie. And so what happens? Everybody, and everybody else starts eating faster, and pretty soon you're just shoveling it down so you can be the first one done so you can get that last piece of pie. Sounds silly, I know, but that is what James refers to as selfish ambition. I want to get more. James says that's earthly wisdom, and it causes all kinds of evil. I want more. It's all about me and what I can get. Okay. So, you know what else is happening? Everybody's sitting there wolfing that pie down as fast as they can. But they're not just thinking about, can I finish before everyone else? They're also thinking things like this. I'm the one who baked this pie, so I should be the one to get the last piece. Or, well, my goodness, this is my house. I'm the host, so I should get the last piece. Or maybe somebody might be thinking, certainly not me. Everyone else at this table is fatter than me, so clearly I should get the last piece. Or maybe somebody's thinking, oh. yeah, I don't know, I lost it. Where's my notes? Yeah, I think that's it for that one. Okay, so, so those are the kinds of things that we're thinking, and we're not saying them out loud, right? Are any of us saying these things out loud? I certainly am not going to sit at a table and go, you guys are all fatter than me, so I'm going to eat this. I mean, we don't say those things out loud, but they run through our minds. And you know what James calls that? He calls it arrogance or pride. It's thinking you're better than everyone else and you deserve more than everyone else. And James says that's earthly wisdom and it causes all kinds of trouble. All right, so now everybody's gobbling down their pie and somebody, somebody finishes before everyone else. Gets up from his place at the table, looks around and says, well, there's one more piece here, and it looks like the rest of you are all still eating, so I guess I'll just take this last piece. And of course, whoever it was that took the last piece is no longer wolfing it down. <laughs> the rest of y'all are wolfing it down, and you've got like two bites left. And the person who took the last piece is like, This, this is so good. And the rest of you are like, I have two bites of crust left. <laughs> and now, now what happens? The other four people around the table are starting to think, think things like, I can't believe that Tom 
took the last piece of pie. He's such a jerk, I'm never talking to him again. Or maybe, that Vern, I know for a fact that he had like six donuts before he even showed up here. I can't believe he's still eating. What a glutton. Or maybe, what does Ben think he's doing, taking the last piece of pie? He's the host. He should be a generous and hospitable host and give that piece of pie to me. You know what this is called? It's called bitter jealousy. It's being bitter and angry because someone else has something you wanted. James says that's earthly wisdom. Now, I tried to pull something really sneaky in there, and I hope you caught it. I tossed in two contradictory statements. Did you notice it? If I'm the host, I say, I'm the host, so I should get the last piece of pie. But if Ben's the host, what I say is, Ben's the host, so he should be generous and hospitable and give me the last piece of pie. Now, do you think we are capable of holding those two kinds of contradictions in our head at the same time? Do our minds work that way? Can we do that? Yes, we can, and that's exactly what James is talking about when he says, and so lie against the truth. We hold that kind of hypocrisy in our minds and in our hearts. We tell ourselves whatever story satisfies our own ambitions or our own bitterness or our own pride. We stop caring about what's really true and focus instead on what we want to believe. And we are so good at that. We really are. James says it's earthly, it's natural, it's human nature. And we are good at believing whatever story makes us feel most comfortable. We are good at believing whatever story gets us what we want, and we're good at finding the voices that will tell us what we want to hear. Now, this is not a sermon about truth, just to be clear. I did one of those about six years ago. Pastor Brian did one of those a few months ago. This is not a message about truth, but I do want to talk for just a few minutes about truth. Um, because I think sometimes we look for ways to allow ourselves to believe whatever we want and whatever is convenient for us to believe without regard for what's really true. Um, and, and one of the ways that we do that is we tend to muddy the line between facts and opinions. Um, and I remember as a child going to school and learning this difference between facts and opinions. And I'm not sure we always remember that and sometimes we confuse the two. So I'm gonna give you another silly illustration. Is that all right? This is gonna be another raspberry illustration. So 
the kids go out in the summertime and they pick raspberries. They don't like doing it, but they understand that if they want me to make raspberry coffee cake or raspberry rhubarb pie, they, they need to go pick the raspberries. Because I tell them I'm too old to do it. It hurts my back to bend over and get the raspberries. <laughs> um, <laughs> and that's not just the story I tell myself. <laughs> So I want you to imagine that the kids go out and they pick raspberries and they come in and they've got a bowlful, like a huge bowlful, and it's 12 cups of raspberries. That's a lot of raspberries. And it takes the whole summer to get that much, but we'll just say they come in with 12 cups of raspberries. Now, I look at that 12 cups of raspberries sitting on the counter and I say, wow. Just think of all the raspberry rhubarb pies I can make with this. And Laura says, uh, maybe, maybe peach raspberry jam instead? And the kids say, let's eat them all now! Now, what we have here is not a difference of fact, it's a difference of opinion. We're all operating from the same basic framework. We understand that there are 12 cups of raspberries there. What we disagree on is what we're going to do with them. And we all have an opinion on that. And in a functional and healthy home, we sit down and we discuss it, and we try to figure out a compromise, which we understand not everybody's going to get exactly what they want, but maybe something that we can all work together on. But suppose instead, I walked into the kitchen, and I looked at that bowl, and I said, wow, what am I going to do with 24 cups of raspberries? Okay, now we have a serious problem. Because this is not a difference of opinion, this is a difference in our framework and our understanding of the facts before us. And I say 24 cups of raspberries, and Laura says, there is not 24 cups of raspberries there, there's 12. And I say, no, there's 24. She says, no, there's 12. I say, 24. She says, 12. She's getting more and more irritated with me every time I do this, of course. And so finally she says, look, Here's the measuring cup. Measure it for yourself. At which point, there are a lot of answers I can give her. I can say to her, eh, well, it's really just a matter of opinion. And she would say, no, it's not a matter of opinion. It's a matter of careful measuring. Or maybe I could say to her, well, who can really know what's true? To me, that sounds a little bit like Pilate with Jesus. What is the truth? Now, if I say that to Laura, if I say, who can really know the truth? She can say to me, anyone who picks up this measuring cup can know the truth. Or I might say to her, well, we'll just have to agree to disagree. Now, when it comes to opinions, we can agree to disagree, although that can sometimes present problems. Like if we agree to disagree about what to do with the raspberries, we're basically agreeing that the fruit flies are going to get them. But when it comes to matters of fact, if I say to her, well, let's just agree to disagree, she could say, no, we will not agree to disagree. 
We can agree that there are 12 cups. We can agree that you're delusional, but we're certainly not going to agree that your delusion is okay and normal. So pick up the measuring cup and measure, or stop acting like you're an expert on how many cups of raspberries we have. Now, why do I go through all of that? It's because there are times, I think, when we use phrases like, it's a matter of opinion, or who can know the truth, or let's agree to disagree, and any of those under the circumstances can be okay, but I think sometimes we use them as a shield to block ourselves from having to listen to information that makes us uncomfortable. They allow us to lie against the truth, to hang on to the stories that we want to believe. And so when you find yourself saying those things, it doesn't mean it's wrong to say them, but I would encourage you to stop for a moment and ask, my, ask yourself, is it really a matter of opinion? Is it really okay to agree to disagree? Is it really impossible to know the truth? Or am I just shielding myself from information that makes me uncomfortable? Am I using these things to help me lie against the truth? I had uh, several years ago uh, an interesting experience, and this directly ties us back to James chapter 3. Uh, I was talking with a Christian gentleman not somebody from this church, just to be clear, because I don't want anyone going home wondering, does that mean he was? No, he was not. And this gentleman was telling me some things about how he believed the world worked. It's always an interesting conversation. And as he's talking to me, I'm, I'm listening to him and thinking about the things that he's saying, and I, I realize he's telling me a conspiracy theory. Something for which I don't have never heard any evidence, and he's not offering many, me any evidence, and yet he wholeheartedly believes it. I thought, this is very interesting. He continued talking, and as he continued talking, I suddenly realized he switched gears and is telling me now about another conspiracy theory that he believes in wholeheartedly. And I'm listening to the second one thinking, I don't think there's any evidence for this either. And then suddenly it hits me, his two conspiracy theories that he wholeheartedly believes in are, to use a math word, a logic word, mutually exclusive. They contradict each other. They cannot be both true. If one of them is true, then it guarantees that the other one could not be because the facts don't mesh. I thought, well, this, I'll just point out to him that these two theories that he believes contradict each other. It'll go fine won't be any problem with that. So I pointed it out to him. I said, look, I don't know if you thought about this, but if this is true right here, then this right here can't be true. And he said, oh, you're right. And he walked away from that conversation still believing both of his conspiracy theories, even after acknowledging to me that they couldn't both be true. And I walked away from that conversation utterly baffled, saying, how does this work in the human brain that we can hang on to these things even though we know in our hearts they can't both be true? How does that work? And I puzzled over it for a long time, 
And I think James 3.14 helps us to understand this. When we hold selfishness in our hearts, when we hold ambition in our hearts, when we hold pride, bitterness, jealousy in our hearts, we spiritually open ourselves up to believing whatever will feed those heart conditions. James tells us that the ability to lie against the truth, to tell ourselves the stories we want to hear, the stories that make us feel good about our own decisions and our own actions, is a direct result of our selfish ambition, our pride, and our bitter jealousy. These things lead into our ability to lie against the truth. So let me illustrate uh, this just a little bit more to help you see how some of these things lead to us lying against the truth. Let's say Ken. Ken let's suppose Ken and I work together. Okay? We work in the same workplace and an opportunity comes up for a promotion. But there's only one opportunity for a promotion. Only one of us can get it. Now, my selfish ambition means I want that promotion, and if I want it badly enough, I will start telling whatever stories help me to believe that I deserve it more than can. My selfish ambition leads me to start telling myself stories about how great I am and how much I deserve this promotion, and at the same time, my selfish ambition leads me to start hammering down on Ken. Well, Ken's a jerk. Ken can't be trusted. Ken's unreliable. Ken was late to work last week. That was terrible. And I start telling myself every story I can to convince myself and anyone who will listen that I'm the one who deserves it. My selfish ambition drives me into lying against the truth, telling the stories that I want to hear. There is never a person so rotten as the person you're competing with. Right? That's the story we tell ourselves. Or suppose Larry. See, Tom, I'm, I'm trying not to pick on you too much this morning. <laughs> You've had a long time to have a break from it. So. <laughs> So Larry and I, we're, we're good friends, and we get together for coffee and donuts or whatever, and, and we're sitting around visiting and having a great time, and one of us says something that the other disagrees with. So we start having a discussion, and our discussion turns ugly, and it turns rude, and it turns into yelling and shouting and insulting and throwing chairs. Okay, probably not throwing chairs, but... Can you picture Larry and me doing this? No? Okay. So, but let's, let's just imagine that this is what happens, and Larry and I both become so enraged that we storm off, vowing never to speak to one another again. And I stomp home in a rage, and I'm so angry. And I know something about human nature, and I know something about arguments. And what I know is that an argument and a disagreement is rarely 
100% one person's fault and 0% the other person's fault. But if I acknowledge my own responsibility for the fight that Larry and I just had, I can't be bitter against him. And I can't hang on to my anger. And if I want to hang on to my anger and if I want to hang on to my bitterness against Larry, I have to start telling lies against the truth. I have to start making up stories about how I was not to fault at all. I behaved in a perfectly appropriate manner. It was all Larry, that rotten skunk. Sorry, Larry. I don't actually think you're a rotten skunk, just to be clear. And Ken, I'm sure you deserve the promotion. So just to be clear. Tom, I'll get to you. No. Uh, <laughs> I will tell myself the stories that will let me hang on to my bitterness and my anger against Larry. I've done it, and I'm going to guess you've done it too. It's human nature. It's earthly wisdom. As James says, it's natural. And in all of these examples, it's our selfish ambition, our pride, our bitter jealousy that drives us to lie against the truth to tell ourselves the stories we want to hear. But this is what makes it even worse. When you lie against the truth, it feeds right back into those other things. If I tell lies about how much I deserve that promotion, it feeds right back into my selfishness and my ambition and my pride. If I tell myself lies about how the whole thing's Larry's fault and what a skunk he is, that feeds right back into my bitterness, doesn't it? And we create for ourselves a cycle that we just keep spinning our wheels in over and over and over again and digging ourselves into a deep, deep rut that we can't get out of. So, as I was preparing this message, I got thinking about my childhood and coming to church here. Uh, no, I'm not going to tell stories about you, Mom, so you're safe. <laughs> or you, Dad. No, I remember sitting up back there. Actually, I guess the pew I sat in isn't even there anymore, is it? They've taken a pew out. And, uh, but anyway, I always sat right back there, and I remember sitting through church services going... And trying my best to listen and understand what was going on and feeling a lot of times like, it's just going right over my head. And, and I don't know what's, I don't understand. There's not a lot from the sermons of my childhood that I remember. But as I was preparing this message, two things came to mind that Pastor Hatch used to say. And he said them many times, which I think is the reason I can remember them, because he said them so many times. They were almost like prophecies, I think. Not that I'm going to say Pastor Hatch had the gift of prophecy, but these two things that he used to say began with, the day is coming. The first one was, the day is coming when the church will care more about its own rights than it does about the life of self-sacrifice and service God calls us to. 
Let me read that again. The day is coming when the church will care more about its own rights than it does about the life of self-sacrifice and service God calls us to. Now, how does that relate to James chapter 3? It relates to James chapter 3 because when we start living our lives thinking in terms of what the world owes me, what my brothers and sisters owe me, what's my right, that's when selfish ambition and pride, and then when we don't get what we think the world owes us, then comes the bitterness and the jealousy. All of those things go together. The day is coming when the church will care more about its own rights than it does about the life of self-sacrifice and service God calls us to. The second thing that Pastor Hatch used to say, and this one came from a verse in Timothy, he would say to us, the day is coming when the church will just want to have its ears tickled and won't care about the truth. Now, I know that when he said that, he was talking about capital T truth, and I get that. But I think we ought to think about that in terms of truth written more broadly. Have we stopped caring about what is true? Would we rather just tell ourselves the stories that we want to hear because they're comfortable? And have we stopped caring about what is true? Now, I thought about, excuse me, I've been talking all morning. This is my second church service today. I thought about ending the, the message this morning by asking these two questions. Have you, are you more concerned with your own rights than with the life of self-sacrifice and service God has called you to? And would you rather have your ears tickled than hear truth? And that's what I was going to end with, asking you those questions. And then I realized something, that I'm not the person to ask that question. And it's not helpful for me to ask that question. Because you see, if those questions, if our answer to those questions is yes, that means we're in that rut, that cycle of just spinning our wheels. And I can tell you from my own experience that when I am caught in one of those ruts, the story I most want to tell myself is this one. I'm not stuck in a rut. I'm not stuck. Maybe you are, but I'm not. So what good does it do me to ask the questions when we're going to say, well, I'm not stuck in a rut? This is why Jeremiah said, the heart is deceitful and beyond cure, because we do tell ourselves the stories we want to hear. This is why David in Psalm 139 said, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try my thoughts and see if there's any wicked way in me because I'm too blind to my own weaknesses and I tell myself the stories I want. You need to show me God. In the New Testament, Jesus said, the Spirit, the Comforter will come and when he comes, he will guide you into all truth. And just so you know, that's the same word that James uses. So it's not just the grand theological truth. It's the truth about what's in my heart and in my mind. So I'm not going to ask you those questions. I'm going to ask that you ask God those questions. God, is there selfish ambition in my heart? God, is there pride in my heart? God, 
Is there bitter jealousy in my heart? Have I stopped caring about the life of self-sacrifice and service that you've called me to, and am I willingly, happily lying against the truth to make myself comfortable? Ask God those questions. Search me, O God, and know my heart. I have really good news. And uh, this is what I want to end with because I think this is, this is what we all need to hear. That if you're stuck in a rut, that's not where God wants you to be. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, God, I am selfish. God, I am bitter. God, I do lie against the truth. If we confess our sins, he is faithful to do two things. The first thing is to forgive. Wipe the slate clean. The second is to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, to begin that process of changing and transforming our hearts and digging us out of the rut that we've let ourselves slide into. It's a work that God can do in spite of our deceitful hearts. Why will God do this work on us? Because he loves us. Where does God want us to be? He doesn't want us to be stuck in a rut let me tell you where he wants us to be. The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy, and the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. That's where I want to be. That's where I want us to be. And more importantly, it's where God wants us to be. Lord, in the coming minutes as we sing together, I pray that you would, as we sing, search our hearts, try our hearts, and show us what is there that perhaps we have hidden from ourselves and lied to ourselves about. Change our hearts, Lord, we pray. Amen.